And if you've got your Bibles with you, we're looking at Matthew chapter 18, verse 15 to 20. Matthew 18, verse 15 to 20. So the passage says, If your brother or sister sins, go and point out their fault. Just between the two of you, if they listen to you, you have won them over. But if they will not listen, take one or two others along, so that every matter may be established by the testimony of two or three witnesses. If they still refuse to listen, tell it to the church. And if they refuse to listen even to the church, Treat them as you would a pagan or a tax collector. Truly I tell you, whatever you bind on earth will be bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth will be loosed in heaven. Again, truly I tell you that if two of you on earth agree about anything they ask for, it will be done for them by my Father in heaven. For where two or three gather in my name, there am I with them. Let's pray for Clive as he comes to deal with what is a pretty difficult text. I am so glad that you preached in this. Father M, we thank you for this man and the word that you've been preparing and putting on his heart for us this morning and pray that you will open our hearts to hear what he has to say, what you've been saying to him for us and bless us all in this event as we hear what you have to say. Amen. Amen. Morning, everybody. How many people have we got from Scotland out there today? Just wave an arm if you're willing from Scotland. You turncoat Richard, you know you're an Englishman. Okay, I just want to say that sometimes, doesn't matter how disciplined you are, how hard you, hard you work at something, how much you obey the person that helps you, uh, when it turns out that God's a Scotsman, you're still in trouble. I mean, it's just one of those, one of those things. And for those of you that I just lost, that is a uh, an illustration linked with rugby, a great sport. But maybe this, maybe this story will help you, because even if you don't have the joy of being a parent, um, you've all been a child. So I want to tell you about Bobby and Billy. Bobby and Billy are, are wonderful guys. Bobby's only 10, and Billy, his younger brother, is only 9, and they are loved by their parents, deeply loved, profoundly loved. And they love each other, and they're great guys, but they're highly intelligent, and although their parents are Christians and they go to a great church and they know the commandment to honor your mother and father, they're just going through one of those phases where highly intelligent, creative, vibrant young boys just get a little bit more than naughty. Do you know what? Anyone relate to that? Girls too, okay? And it's really getting so bad that mum and dad have, uh, have done everything to try and discipline them, but they just can't seem to get anywhere with it. It's just not seeming to work. And they live quite near to the church that the family go to every Sunday. Mum and Dad and Bobby and Billy go to every Sunday. And they love church as well. And they've even made it clear that they love God. But they're just going through one of those massively, massively rebellious, naughty streaks. So that Mum and Dad are giving up on it. They decide to have a word with the pastor. It's quite a formal, traditional Baptist minister. And he says, well, you know, let, let the oldest one come and see me in the morning and then let the youngest one come and see me in, in the afternoon. Just walk them down or they can just come, as they normally do, down to the manse, okay? So Bobby, the 10-year-old, goes down there and he goes into the pastor's study and the pastor's sitting behind this huge oak desk and the walls are covered in books and Bobby's never been in there before and it's a bit intimidating and the pastor just sit, says, sit there, Bobby, and he sits in this chair opposite the other side of this massive oak desk. And it all goes quiet and... 
Bobby's feeling quite apprehensive, and then the pastor says, Bobby, where is God? Bobby doesn't say a thing, so there's a pause, and then the pastor says, Bobby, just increases his voice a little bit, where is God? And he doesn't answer, but now he's starting to tremble a little bit, and the pastor raises his voice a lot and says, Bobby, where is God? And Bobby's really nervous now, and as the pastor builds up to a crescendo and kind of reaches out of his large leather chair a little bit, he says, Bobby, tell me, where is God? And Bobby just jumps up, flees out of the room, runs all the way home, runs upstairs where Billy, his younger brother, is, runs into the built-in wardrobe and slams the wardrobe door behind him, and he's cowering and shaking. And Billy's thinking, that didn't go well. And eventually he opens the door and says, Bobby, 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 I've got to go this afternoon. Whoa, 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 what happened? He said, it's worse than we thought. It's much worse than we thought. It's much, much worse than we thought. He said, what do you mean? He says, well, someone's got God, God's gone, and they think we're responsible for it. <laughs> Where is God in the midst of discipline? And what is God like? Is he like that pastor? Sitting the other side of that big desk? Or does God act differently? I want to talk to you this morning about the radical Jesus resurrected. And about radical discipline. And Ross is right. I wish I was, I wish he was speaking this message rather than me. Um, But as we look at Matthew 18 verses 15 to 20, I, I need to set some really, really clear background before we get anywhere near looking at these verses. And the first thing that I I need us to understand is that for me, and I think for God, and I think for any minister, and I do not approve of the way that Baptist pastor in our story treated that little boy, okay? But what we've got before us here in Matthew 18, 15 to 20 is a practical guide for reconciliation, you could argue. It's about how one sheep helps another lost sheep to return to the fold of sheep or the flock of sheep or to remain into the fold or flock of sheep. It's a practical guide to reconciliation. It's about imitating, if you like, the Father's concern for lost sheep. And I'll, I hope, help us to understand why that's the context I believe is right for now. But there's also another key before we start trying to understand these uh, verses in Matthew. And it's Jesus speaking, so it's really important that we understand exactly what we think Jesus meant as the Holy Spirit helps us. And there's a Greek word underlying uh, this that's very important because this is one of the very few occasions, very, very few occasions where Jesus speaks about church. Now you might think that's a bit weird because Jesus is the head of this church. I'm not, okay, I'm one of the pastors, I'm the senior pastor, team leader, I'm the lead elder, but I'm not the head of this church, Jesus is. When we gather as as a group of members tomorrow, It's the will of God discerned through the mind of Jesus Christ that we need to determine. Not what Clive wants, or what Ross wants, or even what the elders want. Though That's important because they've been praying hard and seeking God. So this word, ecclesia, for church, is an important word. Now at this point, I need to give you a little bit of background, but don't get bogged down uh, in the theological debates and arguments about this but some people say oh no this couldn't have been originally what Jesus said because Jesus wouldn't have talked about the church that that church that word ecclesia for church or called out community from which we get ecclesiastical that would have come in much later it wouldn't have been talking about church discipline here well I, I disagree profoundly and I'll give you good reasons because the Jews who knew their scriptures 
uh, we should say those Jews who knew that God wanted Gentiles to come to know of his love for them, they translated their Hebrew scriptures in a version called the Septuagint, which is based on a word that means 70, 70 scholars. 70 Jewish scholars got together and translated all the Old Testament scriptures, their scriptures, into Greek so that the world which had an understanding of Greek, the whole known world, could understand the word of God. And the word kahal in the Hebrew, which means a congregation or a community of God's people, is the word that in the Septuagint over and over is translated by this word ecclesia. So it's entirely logical that Jesus would use this. He's using it to say, well, let's go back to Matthew 16 and verse 18. I'll read the verse. This is one of the very few other places where he talks about it. I tell you that you are Peter, he says, to Peter, Cephas, the rock, the big fisherman. And he says, on this rock I will build my church, and the gates of hell, the gates of Hades, the gates of death, will not overcome it. On this rock I will build my ecclesia. If he was speaking in Hebrew, he'd say, my kahal, my called out community, those who were called to God through me. Let's look at the context of where Jesus says that back in Matthew 16. See, people had been uh, saying all kinds of things about who Jesus was. And Jesus asked his disciples, but what about you? Who do you, who do you disciples say that I am? And Peter gives Jesus this answer, you are the Christ, which is the anointed one, the Messiah. You're the Christ, you're the son of the living God. And Jesus replies, you can almost see Jesus, if it was colloquially in those days, saying, wow. Jesus says, blessed are you, Simon, son of Jonah, For this was not revealed to you by man, but my Father in heaven. Simon Peter, Cephas the rock, I'm going to build my church on you and your confession. Because the very gates of hell will not prevail against my ecclesia, my kahal, my called out community. Those who love me in this world, Satan and hell itself, death itself has got nothing on it. My called out people are safe against Satan, they're safe against The consequences of sin, which is death and separation from God. So it's important that we get that background. Now I want to say this, that Jesus, as we've said throughout, is the love revolutionary. Jesus is the love revolutionary. Here Jesus is the radical disciple maker. He's the loving disciplinarian. Let me say as passionately as I can, there is no conflict between love and discipline. Bobby and Billy's parents might have got it wrong because the pastor didn't understand perhaps in that situation enough about love and he was looking too much at discipline but the parents loved their boys the father in heaven loves his sons and daughters his one and only son steps into planet earth to reveal the father's love for us and to blast away all the barriers and the barrier is sin between man and god He died on a cross. He laid down his life. He is the radical disciple maker. He's here teaching his disciples, including Matthew, who records this for us, who was a tax collector. Jesus was so radical that that the religious people said, oh, he loves tax collectors and sinners, whores and prostitutes. Do you know every Christian should be accused of that? Those that don't fit in, those that are struggling, those that are wrestling... We've got to be radical love revolutionaries, radical disciple makers, and that does not cut out being loving disciplinarians. You see, the church, the kahal in the Hebrew, the, 
ecclesia, the call-out community, has got to be a radically countercultural, radically grace-filled, radically truth-filled, loving community that recognises that even looking at the word disciple, you see a clear link with the word discipline. Disciples are those who are disciplined. The truth is, in the Western church, there's virtually no such thing often as church discipline. In the Western ecclesia, called out community of God, we either overdo it in such a way that we act even more cruelly than the Pharisees, or we are so convinced that we shouldn't be like that that we never think that love sometimes says that's not right. You see, a loving parent, a father or a mother, disciplines their children as we shall see God as a heavenly father disciplines his children. So that's all by way of background. And if you leave here today hearing the heavy word that Ross would have been reluctant to preach this for, and so am I, then I've let you down and let God down and got it badly wrong. If you leave here with anything else ringing in your ears and your mind and your heart than the words love and grace and truth, I've let you down. So I want to look at this, at what Jesus says in in two parts, because I think there are two aspects to this teaching of Jesus here back in Matthew 18. And the first thing is that there's a process of discipline. There's a process of discipline here. Yes, it is for his community, his kahal. Maybe he didn't have ecclesiastical structures in mind. I still don't think God's that switched on by ecclesiastical structures. When God looks down from heaven, he doesn't see Baptists and Anglicans and Methodists and Catholics and brethren and Pentecostals. He just sees his church and that's made up of all the people who are in his family. Amen? The only, the only label that matters to me is disciple of Christ, follower of Jesus. But there's a process of discipline for what his called out community looks like. We're not called to be out of the world and ignore the world like the Pharisees. We're called to be salt and light in that world and love that that world and show the love of God in that world. But when we gather, we need to be disciplined. We need to be the people that God wants us to be. And sometimes we all get it wrong, me included, of course. But there's a process of discipline to try and avoid that. And then there's a purpose of discipline, which is the most important part of my message. So we're going to look at it in two parts, a process of discipline, and it will be in a community context, so a church context, an ecclesia context, and the purpose of discipline, which is all about individuals and their communities. Not just about the individual, it's not just about the community, it's about the individuals which make up the community. And the first thing to say about this process is prayer has got to be right at the heart of it. We do have a members meeting tomorrow. We've got to be careful about what we say. We don't parade and trumpet our spiritual disciplines. So you shouldn't maybe uh, say a lot about this, but I want you to know that tomorrow I'll be fasting as well as praying. And I'd encourage many of you to join me, all of you to join me. And the first thing that I want to say about this is prayer should saturate any understanding of love and discipline, grace and truth, as we try and live that out. And verses 19 to 20, here, capture it. I tell you that if two of you on earth agree about anything you ask for it, it will be done for you by my Father in heaven. For where two or three come together in my name, there I am with them. It was an elder that has been significantly involved in children's ministry that answered Beth's question about what does one plus one make? And we all said, 
naturally, one plus one makes two. The children all said that. But Beth and our elder has been involved in children's ministry. They know that one plus one equals three if that three is Jesus. Because where two or three meet in my name, I'm with them. So there's a real sense of prayer here. Either prayer, gathered prayer, because it's when you agree with anything, about that, when you agree together about anything that you ask for, it's going to be done by my Father in heaven. Now, not against the will of God. We don't, we don't twist God's arm up his back. But there's a, a whole mystery about prayer there. I don't have time for the tangent. But actually, we get changed. And as we talk to God and, and pray to God and listen to God, often we will set, we'll end our prayers with the word Amen. That means I agree or let it be so. Or, yeah, I'm in agreement with that. And it links back to that text where Jesus says, heard Peter come out with this amazing confession, you're the Christ, you're the Son of the living God. Later on in that text, Jesus says to Peter, not only that he's going to build his church and and the gates of hell will not overcome it, but he says, I'll give you the keys of the kingdom. That whatever you bind on earth will have been bound in heaven. Whatever you loose on earth will have been loosed in heaven. And Jesus is giving similar teaching here. He's saying that You've got this key to the kingdom. You've got this authority, this responsibility. Yes, even this power in my name to enact my Father's will through my called out community. So that's all important background. Let's look at this process of discipline then. The context is sin and the context is lost sheep in uh, verses 1 to 14. We've got to get the, uh, the way to do this right, but the context and the background is childlike humility. The first four verses of Matthew 18 say this. At that time, the disciples came to Jesus and asked, who's the greatest in the kingdom of heaven? He called a little child and had him stand among them. And he said, I tell you the truth, unless you change and become like little children, you'll never enter the kingdom of heaven. Therefore, whoever humbles himself like this child is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven. I want to tell you tomorrow night and every time I go to an elders meeting or a leaders meeting in the church, Please, God, that I continue to go with humility. I'm called to lead. But my doctoral thesis talks about transformational servant leaders. And servant aspects of transformational or visionary leadership means that you stay humble. The greatest leaders have a fierce resolve and a profound humility. I mean, it's funny, isn't it, that Moses says, if it's Moses indeed that wrote this, that Moses is the most humble man in all the earth. If you think about that, I am the most humble man in all the earth. Doesn't sound too good, does it? But Jesus expects humility. It's one of the core values of this church from his disciples. And certainly in this context, Jesus expects humility. We've got to be like little children. The context is sin, verse 9. If your eye causes you to sin, gouge it out and throw it away. It's better for you to enter life with one eye than to have two eyes and be, to be thrown into the fire of hell. Whoa! Now, that's a rabbinical technique of using an extreme position. Don't literally think God wants you to gouge your eye out or elsewhere, Jesus says, or cut your hand off or whatever. Islam has taken that quite literally about thieves. You steal once, you get a hand chopped off. You steal twice, you get another hand chopped off. Oh, my word. Oh, my word. 
Jesus is using it to illustrate how serious sin can be. But the other context is sheep, verse 10. See that you don't look down on one of these little ones, for I tell you that their angels in heaven always see the face of my Father in heaven. What do you think if a man owns a hundred sheep and one of them wanders away? Will he not leave the ninety-nine on the hills and go to look for the one that wandered off? And if he finds it, I tell you the truth, he is happier about the one sheep than about the ninety-nine that did not wander off. In the same way, your Father in heaven is not willing that any of the little ones should be lost. The good shepherd Jesus tells us that the Father doesn't sit the opposite side of a big oak chest, a big oak desk shouting at a little boy. That's not what God's like. God's like the good shepherd who goes looking for the one lost sheep when the 99 are safe. That's what God's like. And all of this is background to the three steps of the process of discipline. I'll give you them and we'll look at them in, in turn. Step one is personal. Step two is private. And step three is public. And in verse 15, it's so abundantly clear that Jesus says, in dealing with sin, when your brothers sin against you, you go to them. If your brother sins against you, go and show him or her their fault just between the two of you. Don't take anyone else along not this stage, if she or he listens to you, you've won your brother over. The first step is to go, not send an email, not write an angry letter, not pick up the phone even and shout down the phone. The first step is to go personally and speak in a way that will win your brother or sister over. If you look at verse 21, Peter, after Jesus has given this teaching we're looking at, Peter probably thinks he's been a real good radical disciple. He comes up to Jesus and says, Lord, how many times shall I forgive my brother, or my sister he could have asked, when they sin against me? And then he shows how keen he is. He says, up to seven times? I mean, think about it. Think about a person that's really hurt you, wounded you recently, said something nasty. You might be struggling to forgive him once. You might have tried two or three times, but seven times? Peter perhaps even is aware that seven speaks of perfection, God's holiness. And let's look up to the answer that Jesus gives. He says, I tell you, not seven times, but 77 times, or 70 times seven. I wish Beth was here because she was a maths teacher and she'd do the maths for me. But please don't try working out what 70 times seven, Ian, you're an accountant, give me the answer. Sorry? 490, right. What Jesus doesn't mean is you've got to forgive 490 times, does he? He means you've got to go on forgiving. Keep forgiving. Keep loving. And so Peter must have been incredibly challenged when Jesus gave that answer. So there's this personal bit. You've got to go, you've got to speak personally. And why? Because then reconciliation can happen. If you're authentic and honest. And elsewhere the Bible tells us to speak the truth in love. Harmony can happen. Unity can be maintained. But if it doesn't work, and because sometimes people won't listen, three times between verses 15 and, and then 16 and 17, three or four times is the word listen. Trying to help people to listen to you. By the way, sometimes you speak, the way you speak to people makes it less likely that they'll listen to you. That's a problem. But when, it, when they're not listening, in the second step, there's a suggestion here by Jesus, a command, you could say, of a meeting with other witnesses. And he draws here in verse 16 from Deuteronomy 19, 15. There's still the desire of reconciliation, not ganging up. 
But he says in verse 16 that if your brother or sister, if he will not listen, take one or two others along so that every matter may be established by the testimony of two or three witnesses. He quotes Deuteronomy 19.15. For Jesus, the Old Testament government is still totally relevant. What's happening here? You take two or three others along. Why? Well, not to gang up, to help that brother or sister to listen and to make sure you're handling yourself properly and so that the others might see the response of the brother or sister and see the way you treat it and work in a little mini-community, a mini-kahal, to bring unity for the whole community. But if that doesn't work... Step three is the public dimension, which is an assembly of the church, an assembly of the church. Let's read verses 17 to 18. If he refuses, she refuses to listen to them, tell it to the church, the ecclesia, the called out community, the kahal, God's community on earth. And if he or she refuses to listen even to the church, now this is totally, utterly shocking, this next bit, treat him or her as you would a pagan or a tax collector. Whoa, 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 hang on, Clive. Matthew wrote this as the Holy Spirit helped him to remember Jesus' teaching. It's recorded here by Matthew. Matthew was a tax collector. Why would Matthew write that? Well, because that's what Jesus said. But Clive, you've already said Jesus was a friend of tax collectors, sinners, whores, prostitutes. He reviled the religious right wing and he was with those people who loved him. Why on earth would Jesus say something like that? Well, I'll tell you why. Not because somebody corrupted it at a later stage, as some theologians claim, but because Jesus was being proverbial. Jesus is being proverbial. He knows that That was something that they would understand, that sin is so serious that if you've gone through this process of the personal, the private, and then the public, and this brother or sister is still not listening, the only loving thing to do is say, you are excluding yourself from our community. You're excluding yourself, because we've done this in love, we've followed the teaching of Jesus, but you won't see this sin. We still love you, but you're excluding yourself. That's challenging, isn't it? But Jesus is speaking proverbially, and what does he want still? Jesus wants unity, harmony, and above all, what Jesus wants is forgiveness. He wants this lost sheep restored to the other sheep, and these sheep restored to the flock of God. The good shepherd laid his life down for his sheep. Wow. Okay, so that's the first aspect, the process of discipline. Jesus has described the process, but what about the purpose? What about the purpose? So we come secondly to the purpose of discipline. And at the outset, the purpose is to achieve in individuals and in communities what God wants for them. God wants the best for the individuals within his family, within his flock, and he wants the best for his communities. And those two things need to go together. It's not just personalized, it's corporate. It's about the community, the kahal, the ecclesia. ecclesia. So the first thing I want to say is it's about growth as disciples. Discipline is about growth as a child in the face of your heavenly father's teaching or Growth as a child, according to what mummy and daddy teach, because they love you and for your best. 
It's to grow into the person that mummy and daddy believe it's right for you to be. If we're talking to talk about a heavenly father, it's to grow into the man or the woman God wants you to be. It's about growth as disciples, verse 19. Again, I tell you, if two of you on earth agree about anything you ask for, it will be done for you by my Father in heaven. God wants us to grow. Now, just a, a little aside before we look at a biblical example of church discipline in the New Testament church, just an aside. Spiritual disciplines, those words are not popular, but those words have been around for hundreds of years and uh, Ross designed a series for the evening services here in the time that we've both been pastors here. And we looked at things like worship as a spiritual discipline, prayer, regular commitment to praying, not just first thing on a morning or last thing at night, but giving yourself to prayer with, with God through Jesus to the Father as the Spirit helps you. Bible study, reading and meditating and reflecting upon Scripture, fasting, which I mentioned earlier, sharing your faith, fellowship with other believers gathering in small groups, home groups, all of these things and others that I haven't mentioned as spiritual disciplines because there's a link between a disciple and someone who is disciplined as a disciple under Jesus, the disciple maker. Let me give you an example. Who has heard of a disciple? I'm guessing everyone here called Billy Graham. Heard of Billy Graham? Billy Graham has undoubtedly preached to more human beings than anyone else ever. That includes the Lord Jesus himself. Billy Graham's preached all over the world. He's had audiences, not just with the Pope and our Queen, Her Majesty. They became friends, I believe. But Billy Graham has preached all over the world in a range of contexts. And trust me, it's a pretty simple, clear, biblical message that he preaches. It's the good news or the gospel that Jesus died, Jesus was resurrected. One of the main reasons he died was to take the substitute, was to die in the place of people that God loves but are barred from a relationship with God because they've rejected God through their own sin. And he made it clear that all you had to do was fully trust in Jesus, come to him, surrender your life to him, accept him into your life, and you will be born again. In all his books, in all his messages, that's what he did. But listen to what this young, very handsome evangelist, Baptist preacher, Listen to one of the things he agreed with his core team in the earliest days of his ministry. He'd gathered his advisors in a hotel room in Modesto, California, and drawn up what became known as the Modesto Manifesto, a range of measures designed to avoid controversy and criticism, such as ensuring that the money that they raised was distributed fairly, most notably, they came up with what became known as the Billy Graham Rule. So it's a, a rule, it's a law, it's a discipline for the Billy Graham group, and particularly for Billy himself, the Billy Graham Rule. This is, by the way, um, from the person who wrote his obituary in the Times on, th on Thursday last week. The Billy Graham Rule, which stated that he would never be alone with any woman who was not his wife, Ruth. From that day on, he says, I did not travel, meet, or eat alone with a woman other than my wife, Graham wrote. We determined that the Apostle Paul's mandate to the young pastor Timothy would be ours as well. Flee youthful lusts. The rule held good for his entire life, writes the obituary writer. He even had a private dinner with Hillary Clinton, relocated to a hotel dining room. Okay? Billy Graham was a good-looking guy. The tragedy is that many, including those disciples who were ministers, vicars, pastors, elders, shepherds, they fall out of ministry because of sins in these three areas, money, sex, and power. 
money, sex and power. And in that Modesto Manifesto, he worked out a disciplined rule of life. Nuns and monks have it. Nunneries and monasteries. And disciples can have it. The spiritual disciplines and the discipline of life. So that we grow as disciples. Now, Corinth was a church where all kinds of stuff was going on. All kinds of stuff was going on. Ross spoke about this uh, last Sunday evening. And in that context in Corinth, in in 1 Corinthians chapter 5, the great apostle Paul is writing about something that has scandalized him. And I'll just read, you don't need to turn to it, but if you want to, fine. 1 Corinthians chapter 5, I'm reading from verse 1. Here's a biblical example of, of this process of discipline. And you'll see the purpose behind it as we move on. It's actually reported, says Paul, to these Christians in Corinth, that there is sexual immorality amongst you. It's like he's shocked. And of a kind that doesn't even occur among the pagans. He's, he's seen it all. He knows what Rome's like. He knows what the world's like. He's travelled the world. He now says it doesn't even occur against the pagans. A man has his father's wife. Now, it doesn't necessarily mean he's sleeping with his own biological mother. But he's disgracing his father, disgracing the community, disgracing the church, because he's not married to this woman who's married to his father. He's having sex with his father's wife. And somehow the church has just let it go. He says, and you're proud. They're talking about, oh, God's grace will cover it. Shouldn't you rather have been filled with grief and have put out of your fellowship the man who did this, even though I'm not physically present, I'm with you in spirit, and I've already passed judgment on the one who did this. Now, notice the word judgment. If you know anything about Jesus, you said, judge not lest you be judged. And Jesus reviled the Pharisees for being judgmental. But there's a difference between making a judgment and being judgmental. It's not the same thing. Paul says, I've already passed judgment on the one who did this just as if I were present. When you are assembled, so he's talking about the kahal, the ecclesia, the community. When you're assembled in the name of our Lord Jesus, and I am with you in spirit, and the power of our Lord Jesus is present, listen to this, it sounds so heavy. Hand this man over to Satan. He's talking about excommunication. So that the sinful nature may not be destroyed and his spirit saved on the day of the Lord. His heart is there. You might think it's harsh language, but the apostle is fearful for this man's soul. He wants him to be restored. He wants him to grow as a disciple. And whilst you're holding it, let me just go to Hebrews chapter 12. And let me talk about the heavenly father who loves but disciplines those he loves. Hebrews chapter 12 from verse 4. In your struggle against sin, you've not yet resisted to the point of shedding blood. And you've forgotten that word of encouragement that addresses you as sons, he could easily add as daughters. My son, my daughter, don't make light of the Lord's discipline. Don't lose heart when he rebukes you. The Lord disciplines those he loves. He punishes everyone he accepts as a son or a daughter. Endure hardship as discipline. God is treating you as sons. For what son is not disciplined by his father? If you're not disciplined and everyone undergoes discipline, then you are illegitimate children and not true sons or daughters. Moreover, we've all had human fathers who disciplined us and we respected them for it. How much more should we submit to the father of our spirits and live? Our fathers disciplined us for a little while as they thought best. And by the way, some of you have had experiences of very harsh discipline and it wasn't best. And it wasn't what God wanted. But God disciplines us for our good, that we may share in his holiness. 
No discipline seems pleasant at the time, but painful. Later on, however, it produces a harvest of righteousness and peace for those who've been trained by it. Growth as children, growth as disciples. Therefore, strengthen your feeble arms and weak knees, make level paths for your feet, so that the lame may not be disabled, but be healed. Wow. You still with me? Let me give your brain a rest. The second thing is about harmony and order in the church family. You see, verses 19 to 20, we've read them and reread them. You know, you make decisions. Whatever you agree on, it will be done in heaven, or it's been done in heaven. Because I am with you where you gather, even as twos or threes, whether you assemble as the church, I am with you. And harmony and order in the church family is absolutely vital. The, the Apostle Paul warns about those who are divisive. You won't hear many sermons on this in the Western church. Titus chapter 3, verses 9 to 10. Paul says to Titus, he's, he's instructing to appoint elders on the island of Crete, and the church is there. And he says this, Avoid foolish controversies, genealogies, and arguments and quarrels about the law. Don't get bogged down in continual arguments about the truth. Hold to it. Look at it. Define it. Discuss it, but don't go on and on and on about pointless arguments. Because these are unprofitable and useless. Verse 10, warn a divisive person once, warn him a second time, after that have nothing to do with him. Same thing that Jesus is saying about the proverb of tax collectors and sinners. And there's one other thing here, and I don't know of any pastor that ever likes reading this verse, but I will read it. It's back to Hebrews 13, verse 17. Obey your leaders who, uh, and submit to their authority. They keep watch over you as men who must give an account. Obey them so that their work will be a joy, not a burden, for that would be of no advantage to you. Let me tell you that the best statistics I have, and I've checked them recently, is that for ordained ministers, men and women, ordained in the church as vicars, pastors, shepherds, two out of ten make it from their ordination to retirement still in ministry. Eight out of ten fall by the wayside. Now, I'm sure that some of them is because of the kind of things I've talked about, money, sex, and power. It's tragic, it's heartbreaking. But if I had a pound for every time a guy at the rugby club when they heard I was going to become a minister talked about dipping my hand in the offering or doing unspeakable things with the choir, I'd be rich. But I think of the eight that don't make it, some of them, they just lose their joy. Their joy just goes. They can't handle it anymore. So they drop out. Tragic. But this God has a purpose for discipline he knows that disciples are people who are disciplined, but I want to come back to the heart of this, that it's all about love. The whole rule, the most important thing I will say today, is that the purpose of discipline is about reconciliation, it's about restoration, and it's about love. It's about restoration, it's about reconciliation, it's about love. One more time, it's about love. It's about reconciliation with God and each other, and it's about restoration to where we should be. And just so I can go back to that biblical example, if you thought Paul spoke harshly about the guy who's having sex with his father's wife, 
Listen to what he says in 2 Corinthians chapter 2, verses 5 to 11. For me, though I can't prove it, almost certainly about exactly the same situation and person. If anyone has caused grief, he writes, he's not so much grieved me as he's grieved all of you, to some extent. Not to be put too severely. The punishment inflicted upon him by the majority is sufficient for him. Now instead you ought to forgive and comfort him so that he will not be overwhelmed by excessive sorrow. I urge you therefore to reaffirm your love for him. The reason I wrote to you was to see if you would stand the test and be obedient in everything. If you forgive anyone, I also forgive him. And what I've forgiven, if there was anything to forgive, I've forgiven in the sight of Christ for your sake. In order, he's back to Satan, in order that Satan, who he said, hand him over to Satan, in order that Satan might not outwit us. He doesn't want Satan to outwit that young man. He doesn't want Satan to outwit us, for we are not unaware of his schemes. If, if Satan can, he will try and divide churches. He'll try and split churches. He'll try and pull them apart. But the Father's heart is that the body of his Son on earth, Jesus Christ, who is the head of the church, will be a church that knows much more about reconciliation, restoration and love than it does about rejection and hatred. Whatever else this church stands for now, after Monday night and in the days ahead, I hope it stands as a church that will love all men and all women whatever their sexual orientation, whatever they experience in terms of love for others. But we do that aware of the truth of God's Word. I want to finish with a story. It's a very personal story, and I'll be quite candid with you in the first service. I broke down as I told it. I hope you'll be spared that in this service, but it's a story about my own son. Because I'm talking about a Heavenly Father who's a God of love. And my Heavenly Father taught my son's earthly father something about his love and his grace in the midst of an issue of discipline. So I want to speak well of my son, Adam. It's a good name, isn't it, for a son? The first human being, according to Genesis, whether you take that literally or symbolically, was Adam and the next one was Eve. And my Adam... uh, and you often say this as a parent, he got into the wrong crowd. Do you know why we say that? Well, firstly, because it's true. Those we hang around with are going to influence our behaviour. Secondly, we say it because we don't really want to blame our child, because how could our child be like that, okay? So he's a young boy, he's maybe Bobby or Billy's age. And God taught this father and this pastor something about not sitting the other side of an oak desk shouting at someone. Because my son was brought back to my house one evening sometime after school. He'd been in town with his friends by two special constables. You know those? that They're kind of police, but they're volunteer police and they're not quite full. You know, special constables, if I've got it right. And they were really kind guys. Um, one just lived around the corner, which was embarrassing. They had to bring my son from the bottom end of the high street in town, past the church that I pastored to the manse, which is just around the corner from one of where, where one of these guys lived. And the reason they brought him, because my son Adam, who is a scrupulously honest man, 
and now works in the finance sector in Geneva in Switzerland. And he'd never have been able to do that if these guys hadn't been good policemen. They had every right to take it further, but they'd spoken to the shopkeeper where, as my son had got into the wrong crowd, and they egged him on, and they egged him on, and then they abandoned, scattered, when he was nabbed by the shopkeeper rightly for trying to put something in his pocket he hadn't paid for. And then he called these special constables are outside. My scrupulously otherwise honest son, and he is because he learnt a lesson this day he'd never forget, is brought home by these police constables. What did I do? I sent him to his room. I chatted with my wife, Marilyn. We prayed, and then I went upstairs and I said, son, you're going to write a letter of apology. You're going to hand it personally to the shopkeeper. I'm going to pay for the thing that you took. He said, but he got it back, Dad. I gave him it. I said, I know, but you're still going to pay for it. He didn't say a thing. He didn't apologize. He didn't cry. He just wrote the letter. I asked him what he wanted to write, what he felt he should write. He wrote the letter. We went down there. The shopkeeper was gobsmacked. We caught him just before closing. He was gobsmacked. Didn't expect anything like this. He accepted my son's apology. My son apologized. Still no tears, no apparent remorse. Uh, And I paid for the thing. He said, you don't have to. I got it back. It wasn't damaged. I said, no, I'm sorry for the inconvenience, and I want to do this. I want to teach him a lesson. It will come out of his pocket money. I want to teach him a lesson. I go home with Adam. I say, go up to your room, and I knew that there was a program on television he'd been so excited about watching. He was longing. I can't even remember whether it was a footy game or a movie or what. I just said, you're not watching that. And as I closed the door behind him and walked down the stairs, I heard my heavenly father say, let him watch the program. I didn't get it. But Lord, he's done this. I had to make sure it wasn't just disciplining my son, but my name as a minister in that town and the neighbor around the corner who was a policeman, you know? But I was pretty sure that it wasn't that. I just didn't get it, so I prayed again. If I'd ever heard God, I heard God say, let him watch the program. So I said, why? And God said, because I want him to understand grace. So I went into Adam. So I don't necessarily expect you to understand this, but I've got something really important to teach you. But before I try and do that, you can watch your program tonight. And his jaw dropped. And he looked confused, and I said, you can watch your program. And he said, why? And I said, because... Your heavenly father and mine just told your father to let you watch it because he loves you like I love you. And he wants you to understand this concept of grace whereby God doesn't give us what we deserve. He gives us what we don't deserve. He loves us. He cares for us. He's passionate about us. And at that moment, he burst into tears for the first time, threw his arms around me and said, I'm sorry, Dad. And I just talked to him and said, it's okay, son. I love you. And now you know that I love you, but you know that your heavenly Father loves you. So pray for Adam, because I couldn't love him more. I don't love him any more or less than Jody or Pippa. But Adam, last time I picked him up at the airport, only time he's been to Plymouth, he said, what time's church? I said, why? He said, I want to go. He came and he was massively impressed by a young 28-year-old called Ross. And he said, he's a good preacher, Dad. I won't say what he said next, because that'd be arrogant, but... um, And I can relate to Ross. And I'm still praying for Adam because as far as I'm aware, though he's a good and an honest man, 
living in a world that has a totally different set of morals by a set of morals that's not quite where I'm at, but certainly is a, in a good place in the eyes of many. I want to look to the day when he comes to fully embrace that grace for himself. I'm going to ask the musicians to come back. I'm going to pray for us. Will you stand with me? I don't know if you need some of that amazing grace today. I do. I certainly do. So I'm going to turn my hands up to heaven to show my heavenly Father that I long for him to pour some of that grace into my hands and my heart and my life. And if you're comfortable doing it, maybe you want to turn your hands to heaven as well. And if you're not, don't feel you have to. And let's pray. Loving Heavenly Father, I thank you that you are a God of grace. Lord Jesus Christ, I thank you that you are the radical disciple-maker and the radical disciplinarian, and in you, Lord, love and law come together. You're not a hater and you don't produce hatred. You're a lover and you produce love. And your love transforms us, Lord. Just as your love transformed my son so that he could be broken and say sorry and understand something way beyond our capacity to understand fully. Lord, I am a sinner and I stand here by grace alone. I'm an imperfect man, an imperfect father, an imperfect husband, and an imperfect pastor, but I thank you today for your grace and love. And the truth is, there's not a man or a woman in front of me, and they won't be gathered here tonight, and they won't be gathered at the members' meeting. Whatever their views, whatever their perspectives, there's not a man or a woman that you don't love with a passion. A passion that took Jesus to the cross. And I thank you for that love and I thank you for that passion. But help us, Lord, not to see discipline as a dirty word. Help those of us who are parents to discipline in the way you'd have us discipline, with love, unconditional love and acceptance. But a recognition that we have an important responsibility to shape young lives. And Lord, as a church, help us to do the same thing. Help us to know that we have a responsibility to shape disciples. Jesus, you came from the Father full of grace and truth. We need to remember the first word there is grace. An equally important, valid word is truth. Help us to know in our lives and in our church what it means to live 100% grace and 100% truth. We give you ourselves, we give you this week. And we pray that you'd be at work in us and through us in the name of Jesus. Amen.